This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where we take a closer look and dig a little deeper into this week's sermon. What's up, Bible nerds? Hey, how we doing? What's going on? It's a good day, man. Yeah? It's, uh, at the time that this releases, it's the uh, beginning of Holy Week. I know, man. I'm excited. It starts Holy Week. Yeah. And I always feel bad, like, when Holy Week starts, because, like, I'm excited and I'm happy because, like, it's a great time to celebrate and um, to, like, remember some really important things. and um, But I'm also happy that it's the end of Lent. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. That yeah. feels kind of crappy, but I don't know. Like, I, I do get excited. Like, oh, thank God. Like, Lent is almost yeah. over. Well, Clayton, Clayton and I both gave up the same thing. But Clayton takes Lent in a much more Catholic approach, even down to the dietary systems that you do. Yeah. It. It's pretty difficult. Yeah. Um, I started doing that like three years ago. Um, and it was just really, the first year was tough, like really, really hard. Yeah. Um, because I gave up nicotine too. Yeah. Um, and so, because I w- had a really bad habit of smoking cigarettes. And so um, I was like, well, this is really not good for me. And I, been wanting to quit for a while so let me give this up yeah um so giving up nicotine and then doing all the dietary things it was really hard but at the end i was like this is just really life-giving for me yeah um and then the next year it was the same um and so i I thought why not keep going why not keep continuing yeah Um, so it is really difficult, which yeah. also means I'm really excited when it's over. <laughs> yeah. My Lenten experience is I just sacrifice something. Yeah. Um, I don't do the whole diet thing. Um, so for me, I'm still excited when it's over. Yeah. Right. But, um, man, it really makes resurrection morning so much sweeter. It does. It really does. It, Cause you've, you've been through some experience of sacrifice for these 40 days. Yeah. And it does, it makes it all that much sweeter. It really does. And um, now the point of the sacrifice is to prepare our hearts, help us remember mm-hmm. some similar pains that Jesus went through, right? Now, mm-hmm. the pains that we're feeling, the, the sacrifices that we're doing, do not measure up. Right. His is exponentially more. Yeah. But as... You and I like to talk about American Christians don't have to sacrifice anything. Really. Yeah, we don't have to sacrifice anything. If, um, if 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 nothing else, being a Christian gives you some kind of status of privilege in America. It does. Um, so it's really important to take this Lenten period to sacrifice. Yeah, I think so. Um, because it gives you some sort of idea of suffering. Yeah. Um, some kind of experience of sacrifice. Yeah. Anyways... So, with all that being said, we're talking about the triumphal entry. Yeah. Um, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Um, so, in Luke 19, uh, you want to walk us through a little bit? Yeah. I'm doing something different with this text this year. Typically, what I would do when I preach Palm Sunday, which has not been uncommon throughout my preaching career, but as I've preached this text, typically what I would do is 
this is the moment where Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem and he's proclaimed as king. Yeah. The interesting thing about that is it's, as I've read this text preparing for this year, I'm also doing something special with Easter that I've never done before. Um, And so I think I was just looking at the text differently and, and something popped out at me is that the praise for the king here is momentary, superfluous praise for the king. Yeah. Because these same people that are praising and triumphing him as king when he enters the city are the same people that kill him. Yeah. Literally a week later. Mm-hmm. Or like not even a week later. And so as I was thinking about that, we do this. Absolutely we do this. We we absolutely do this. We we will easily praise and triumph the king when it's convenient to do so, when everybody else is. Yep. But when things get hard, what will we do? I mean, Peter himself falls into this, denying Jesus three times Yep. Um, during all of this mm-hmm. as the things come through the crucifixion and trials of Jesus. And so... For me, there are a few things that stick out here that that I kind of highlight in the story, but I don't don't have a ton of time as always. But when he tell when Jesus tells the uh, two of the disciples to go into the village and get the colt, yeah, that's never been ridden. Once I don't know that I even have time to get into it right now, but but that's that's important that the colt's never been ridden. Right. Um, untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why are you untying it, why are you taking this colt, just say this: the Lord needs it. Now this is interesting because the word Lord in Greek is. In this kind of setting, when you're going into the holy city of Jerusalem, when you say Lord, there's a specific someone you're talking about. Yeah. It's the emperor. Right. It's it's the Lord, the one that's on the coin. Right. And Jesus doesn't specify that he's not talking about Caesar. Right. He's not talking about the emperor. He just says, tell him the Lord needs it. The interesting thing about that is is that Jesus doesn't feel the need to justify his lordship over Caesar. Mm. Well, at one point, I mean, he's not justifying it, but at one point he does address it, right? Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give unto God what is God's, right? Yeah, but Um, even, even in that narrative... He's he's not justifying either. He's just saying, "Hey, 
Yeah. Give, give Caesar these earthly things. I'll take the eternal things, the right. people of God. Right. Um, but here, when he's coming in to have his experience as king, at which point his exaltation will be on a cross, his crown will be of thorns, and his royal cloak will be soaked in blood. Right. He doesn't feel the need to justify his lordship. Yeah. He is Lord, whether we accept it or not. Jesus sits on the throne, whether we believe it or not. Yeah. He is Lord because he is Lord. And he's not going to justify it to anyone. He doesn't have to. He is simply Lord. Mm. Our question is, is he our convenient Lord or is he our eternal Lord? Yeah. That's the question that these people wrestle with. Who is Lord Jesus to you? In, in, this, in this scenario, they go and get it and, and they go get the, the colt. He said, they say the Lord needs it and they brought it to Jesus and they put their cloaks on it and he begins to ride it. And as he rides it, the people begin to spread their cloaks on the road and lay palm branches before him. Because the king, the Lord, doesn't walk the same places that the commoners walk. Right. There's something different about the Lord. And when they do that, they're embracing the idea that the identity that Jesus is Lord, that he is king. But they're doing it in a moment where it's convenient because in five days, they're going to be the same people that crucify him. Well, and something that I'm sure somebody's talked about at some point and I missed, but um, something I just realized is that this may be one of the only places in Scripture that we see Jesus um, put himself at a higher place. Usually we see Jesus lower, humbled, right? Nowhere to lay his head, right? Dirty. Yeah. But here, he's like, no. This is time for me to be king. Yeah. The only, Which is interesting. The only time that you really get that idea that Jesus is other than is specifically in Mark's gospel. It shows up in um, the other synoptics in some ways, but specifically in his power over demons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His exorcism ministry reveals him, excuse me, reveals him as Lord. Right. Um, but you're right. As far as his interactions with other people... He doesn't take a place of status. No, but here he does. Yeah. Even though he had the opportunity, right? right? He had a lot of wealthy people around him. Yeah. He could have, and he chooses not to. Um, except here. Right. And I think it's because he knows what's about to happen. Right. As evidenced by him praying in the garden. Right. He knows what's about to happen. And he says, okay, it's time for them to embrace me as king so that they see what kind of king I am. 
Mm. The one that takes my exaltation on a cross. The one that takes my place of status so that they can have my place of status. That it's that I'm a, I'm the people's king. Mm. That you're embracing me and you're triumphing me into this city as king of this city. But yet my kingship is for you. It's not for me. And something that I think is interesting is it says in 37... As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen. And I want to be careful here. Don't, don't read into my comments more than they're meant to be. These people are looking for a king that Jesus doesn't want to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're looking for a king of earthly power that will restore Israel to the throne. Yeah. And that's remove the, the Roman oppression. Yeah. And that's not a king that Jesus wants to be. They're looking for a political powerhouse. Yeah. And it's it's the great story of one of their own. Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, the low guy, just like you and me, is now going to be king. Yeah. It's the Cinderella story of all Cinderella stories. Yeah. But when Jesus doesn't want to be the king that they want, they turn on him. Yeah. Take power as a very broad word here. But... I think it's probably safe to say, and I'm learning this lesson the hard way. We all have stipulations on what kind of king Jesus has to be. We all have stipulations of the things that, that we want and that we feel like God owes us. Mm. And I had a friend tell me the other night, God doesn't owe you anything. Yeah. If God owed you something, that would make you God. God doesn't owe you anything. And yet we all have this habit of placing stipulations upon Jesus or God about how he must act in the world. These people are doing the same thing. They have an expectation of how Jesus will act. And when he doesn't, they reject him deny him, and kill him. Mm. And they go above and beyond to do so. Yeah. The Sanhedrin doesn't have the authority to kill someone. No. Except in rare cases. And so they charge him with blasphemy. But blasphemy doesn't merit death. And so then they take him to Herod to have him charged with insurrection, leading a revolt claiming to be king, at which point is it does merit death. And so they have him killed. And that's why Jesus is killed under a Roman law of crucifixion, not a Sanhedric law or Hebrew law of stoning or some other form. 
Yeah. Jesus dies under a Roman law. But it's because, according to Paul, the Jews killed him. The Jews are the ones that had him killed. And so these same people that are praising Jesus have a stipulation upon Jesus that when he doesn't meet it, when he doesn't look or do his rule the way that he thinks that they think he should, they turn on him and they reject him. Yeah. And they even they even say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Yeah. They've got it right. They, yeah. He is the king. He does come in the name of the Lord. Well, <laughs> but the problem is, is that your stipulations upon what his kingship and rule should look like aren't yours to have. Yeah, and going back to that first comment that you made that Jesus is Lord because he's Lord, right? Mm-hmm. For no other reason other than he just is. Yeah. Um, right here at the, at the end, uh, verses 39 and 40, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Stones can't shout. Thus, he's Lord because the stones are there. <laughs> like, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, um, He's just God. He's king, right? Yeah, he is Lord, according to um, Philippians 2. He is Lord because God the Father has exalted him to that position. Yeah. There's nothing we can do about that. Nope. He is Lord because he's Lord. That's what he says goes. Yeah, well, and... to say it in a line that our dad hates, it is what it is. Yeah. It, it just, it is. Yeah. And so as I, as I was studying this text for several weeks in preparation for this story and Easter, I just realized that the problem here is that they have a stipulation upon Jesus's kingship yeah, on the way in which he rules. And we do this. God, if you're God, you must restore my marriage. God, if you're God, you must heal this person of cancer. God, if you're God, you must not let the innocent suffer. God, if you're God, you must not X. Yeah, that comes to a really tricky place because we are trying to tell God how to be God when we do that. Um, That's exactly what we're doing. And it's a really tricky place to be in because at some level, where is prayer advocating? Right? Yeah, where is faith? Right. Where is trust that God's going to still be God whether he does it the way you want it? Exactly. But, and, and that's that whole your will be done piece. Yeah. But we also see places where God's mind can be changed. Yeah. Right? And so that becomes a really tricky place to be. What do you do with that? What I do with it is that it's the place where it comes 
from the root. And the root of that, when you have stipulations upon God that are so superfluous that if he doesn't act the way that you want Mm. him to act, you reject it, Mm. it's because you have a place where you feel like God owes you something. Mm. It's a hard lesson. I'm learning it right now. But you can put a stipulation upon God because whether through a reading of scripture or through an experience of something, you've come to a place where you've said, God, you owe me this. Mm. You owe me to act or engage the world in this way. Yeah. And so when you don't, when he doesn't, you reject God because it's somehow his fault because he's not the promise keeper. But God never promised to owe you anything. God promised to be God. (laughs) God promised that if you trusted him, that you would be provided for, that he would never leave you nor forsake you. And yet, because each one of these people felt like they owed him something, that that he owed them deeds of power of which they'd seen, when he doesn't give it to them, they reject him. And we do the same thing. We have expectations upon the deeds of power of which God interacts in the world for his glory, not our glory. When you feel like you're owed a deed of power, it's because you've put yourself in a position of God that you need glory, not because God needs glory. And that's the place where we struggle is... The minute that I say, God, you owe me this. I've taken your place on the throne. And which means when it comes, I can steal the glory. I did this because I prayed for it. I did this because I was blameless. I did this because I was righteous. This happened to me as God's blessing because I'm a person of faith and I'm faithful to the Lord. Not because of God's grace. Not because God is God. God is God and Jesus is Lord whether we believe God is God and Jesus is Lord. And it's our job to realize that God is God and Jesus is Lord and they don't owe us anything. And that our expectation of deeds of power are because they are God and Lord of grace, not because they owe us anything. And so when I read this text, I now realize why so many Christians in America can so easily leave their faith. They feel like God owes them something. Yeah. God owes them a deed of power. God owes them blessing. God owes them the throne. Yeah. But God doesn't owe us anything. God is God because He's God. Yeah. So I want to address the church. Um not just specifically you Bible nerds, but everyone. 
Holy Week is a week that is meant to reflect. Holy Week is a week meant to remember. So, this week, I challenge every one of you to contemplate on the word King. Contemplate on the word Lord. And the idea that God is God because He is God.